and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the scientific study of consciousness and why it may be on the wrong track. I'll talk to the philosopher Alva Noe, currently of UC Berkeley, formerly of UC Santa Cruz, and author of Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain, and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. That's straight ahead. On to today's feature, Thinking Outside the Brain. In the last couple of decades, cognitive scientists have been increasingly tackling a question they used to cede to philosophers and mystics, the nature and origin of consciousness. And while scientists allow that answers may not come easily, at least they know where to look. The brain, obviously. Well, obvious but wrong, according to philosopher Alva Noe, He says neuroscientists are still pretty clueless about the workings of consciousness, and one reason is they're looking in the wrong place. Probe the brain all you want, and you won't find a conscious being in there. And that is not because nobody's home, but because our home is the world, not our skull. And if you want to know what our minds are made of, you've got to look way beyond the cranium. And uh, now, before I use up my supply of metaphors, let's go to the interview. Alva, welcome. It's great to be here. Now, as you see before you, I brought some props to this interview, some instructional aids. (laughs) I have here a hammer, a big one. I have a um, bottle of uh, fine Mexican distilled beverage. Why don't you pass that one over here right now at the start? (laughs) Just a moment. (laughs) And I have a a vial of um, medications. Okay. Now, I'm going to propose something to you. If I were to take this hammer and swing it with enough force into my own skull... I propose that my consciousness would end at least temporarily, maybe forever. If I were to take one or more of these pills, so I'm told, my consciousness would change. In fact, the edge would be off of it. That's what they say. And if you and I were to swill this tequila, I bet we'd both be conscious of a newfound friendship of the I love you, man (laughs) variety. Now, all of those things are, are changing my consciousness or would change my consciousness because they're neuroactive, because they, they act on my brain. And in fact, if I could open up your brain right now and poke it a little bit and introduce some electrical current in various places, I bet I could make you sense and feel certain things. I mean, neuroscientists have done this with awake patients. So what is this you're telling us that consciousness is not in the brain? The uh, central claim of my research is that although the brain is absolutely necessary for consciousness, it isn't sufficient. And this idea that one can explain our experience just in terms of what's going on inside of us is really an unargued for just kind of a a metaphor that seems to have, have guided our imagination. Even the examples you gave, I think, seem to really support this. It's certainly true that if you smack yourself in the head with a hammer, um, it's going to have a major effect on your consciousness. But think about what would happen if if you watched me smack myself in the head with the hammer. That's going to affect you, too. It's going to cause all sorts of emotional uh, and uh, perceptual... Oh, you give me uh, too much credit. Well, <laughs> no, that doesn't... I am not. don't mean to give you too much credit. But um, the point is we're very much 
as animals, as human beings, attuned to the worlds we find ourselves in. And um, uh, what goes on in your brain is, is necessary, but is never entirely sufficient for explaining um, how anything shows up in our lives, how anything matters to us. So, so you write that the brain is not the locus, that is the, the site of consciousness inside us, because consciousness has no locus inside us? Yeah, that's right. It's just a sort of a, a fundamental mistake. Instead of thinking about consciousness as something that happens inside of us, we really need to think about it as something we do, something we enact, something we achieve. And like everything that you do and enact, it depends on the context in which you find yourself. For instance, how you ski depends on your own skill, but it also depends on the landscape of the, of the, of the mountain down which you're skiing. And um, what kind of a conversation you and I have isn't just a sort of an unfolding of what's inside me and an unfolding of what's inside you. It's a dance. So I think of consciousness as like a dance with the world around us. And dance depends on me. Dance depends on what's going on inside me, but not only on what's going on inside me. Um, well, well, you say that uh, consciousness is not located inside the brain the way digestion is located in the stomach. And that might be a little bit of a jab at your colleague at, at UC Berkeley, John Searle, who is fond of saying that it is located in the brain just like digestion takes place in, in the stomach, right? That's right. <laughs> but, but why make that distinction? Hey, digestion involves the food chain. It involves organic chemistry. It involves the capturing of energy in, in uh, chemical bonds uh, during photosynthesis. And then when you eat that green bean, you know, and, and it goes into your stomach, you're starting to break those bonds. Uh, it involves uh, your metabolism. In other words, it's not located in the stomach either. Nothing's located anywhere in this analysis. Well... As a matter of fact, I think one can speak of, of digestion being located in the stomach. We can look at processes in the stomach and say, right now, these are chemical processes by which nutritional substances are being broken down with acids and, and juices, and there's, there's muscular activity. It's all contributing to it. And, and what I want to say is that there's no explanation of what's going on inside of our brain, which similarly allows us to say, you know, this is the thinking that I'm now doing, or this is the feeling that I'm now having. We haven't gotten there yet, but, uh, you know, as neuroscience progresses, we begin to break down the parts of the brain. I mean, can't we say for sure that the visual cortex is essential to visual understanding, visual perception? And if you have an injury to the visual cortex, you may not be able to see anymore. Can't we say that Broca's area is involved in language, and if you have a stroke that affects Broca's area, your language abilities are going to be affected. I mean, aren't we getting there? I mean, we're, we're at a very early point in this process, maybe historically, but if we look back in the history of any science, there was a time when someone would have said, well, we don't understand it yet. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and the first thing I want to say to it is somewhat concessive. In, in a sense, I want to say, of course, um, all of these areas um, are necessary for these functions, and therefore damage in those areas will disrupt those functions. To admit that is not to admit that what's going on in those areas is alone sufficient for the exercise of these functions. So I make the concession to you that, of course, damage in those areas will produce those breakdowns in what we can do and how we feel, but that doesn't, that doesn't prove your point. But let me now step back from the concession and make a deeper point that there's nothing actually intrinsic about the cells that you find in what we call the visual cortex that explains why they're supporting vision. And in fact, it's only in the context, I would say, of our developmental and indeed ongoing in real-time dynamic interaction with the environment that that brain area is able to participate in that function. Well, your claim, again, is that uh, that consciousness is this larger um, interconnected um, nexus rather than some isolated, lone thing that can be located in the brain. So, for instance, um, when I was a kid, I read a very scary novel 
these aliens had uh, kidnapped this earthling and had performed a series of horrible, horrible operations in which they first cut away one limb and then another and then another. And this guy would wake up and have less and less of himself. And finally, he ended up being the proverbial brain in a jar. And the horror of, of being cut off from the world in that way and yet still thinking uh, in this, um, you know, in this uh, solu- saline solution. <laughs> yeah, that- you say that's really not a realistic scenario, even if we had the technology. Well, philosophers, philosophers and, and sort of science fiction writers love to, um, to make these fantasies. But if you actually try to fill in the details about how the fantasy is supposed to go, I, I, I think it's, it beca- beca- becomes easier to see that there's, there's little fallacies that are made. So, for example, um, the solution that keeps the brain going. Well, what does that solution have to be doing? It has to be supporting the metabolic process of the brain. Mm-hmm. It has to be disposing of the waste that mm-hmm. is put off by the metabolic yep. process of the brain. So right away, that 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 vat, that jar, is really going to be something like a body. But I'd go even a step further and say that if you start to think about how much importance um, stimulation to the brain plays in the generation of consciousness, that pretty soon as engineers, we'd really realize that we actually would have to build a world for that body to be in. Now, so you're saying you can take the brain out of the boy, but you really can't take the brain out of the world. If it, I guess my, my, my thought is that the, the basic function of the brain, uh, if we think of it as, as having a function, is to enable our ongoing dynamic of interaction with the world. Take the world away, take the body away. And you lose the point, and eventually everything goes black. Mm-hmm. Well, what about these uh, conditions, and, and you write about them a bit, uh, these medical conditions in which a stroke or some other catastrophic event you know, um, severs the connection between the brain and the outside world in some way. We lose motor control. We're totally paralyzed. There's this thing called locked-in syndrome, which people may be familiar with through the movie The Diving Bell and the Butterfly a terrible stroke in the brainstem renders someone so paralyzed that in some cases they can't move a single muscle. In some cases they can move an eyelid or something like that. And yet we know, because people have communicated by batting that eyelid, including the author of The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, the book on which the movie was based, that they are conscious. In fact, they can be fully conscious. The the whole premise of the movie and book is that this guy had a vivid inner life despite the fact that he could not move at all. And by the same token... There are conditions which sever um, inputs from the world, you know, that we lose our sense of touch, our sense of proprioception, that, which tells us where our limbs are, mm. lose our eyesight, obviously. We can go deaf, dumb, and blind. Um, you could certainly imagine clipping all of those sensory inputs whatsoever so the brain was receiving nothing from the outside world but would still be conscious. No? For me, the fundamental question of consciousness, the question that, that guides all research or should guide all research is this. How does the world show up for us? Um, when I look around the studio, I see you, and I see the equipment, and I see the lights, and I see the glass of water on the counter before me. I see the, the hammer, uh, which I'm slightly nervous about, and I see the tequila, which looks kind of tempting, and I see the, the drugs. I have no idea what they are. Um, and all of this um, shows up for me, right? So it, it shows up for me thanks to my conceptual knowledge, thanks to my eyesight. What, what, what I have is the ability to achieve access to all that there in front of us. As you start to strip away what I can do, you strip away my modalities of access to the world, and eventually I don't believe human beings or any other animal has the resources to generate a world for themselves alone without the world's participation. Who was it? Was it Husserl who said uh, that consciousness is always consciousness of something? 
That's a very, that's, this is an idea which philosophers have a technical term for. They call that intentionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that we're always directed towards something. So, yeah. so without a something, there is no consciousness. That would be right. That would be right. Mm. Well, let's back up and let's just ask, you know, a question that hopefully people who study consciousness ask themselves all the time. Why? I mean, what is it that we think we're studying? Um, we're asking a question about how it comes about, what it consists of, but we still have a sense of it, and that it is a legitimate object of study, consciousness. Well, that hasn't always been true. Um, it's really only in the last, um, to, just to be a little bit little bit generous, say the last 30 years that consciousness has, has been brought into focus as a problem for, for, for science. Um, much of the 20th century was dominated by the behaviorist paradigm, where we thought, well, mind is just sort of too vague a notion to to try to study. Oh, let's study something we can study, so let's look at behavior. Um, behaviorism developed um, under the influence of the computer model of the mind into um, a way of trying to think about mental processes as, as computational processes realized in some medium, again, a medium which is sort of inside the skull and, and hard to study. And it's really only in, in I'd say, the last 30 years that philosophers have begun, excuse me, philosophers and scientists have begun to, to realize that um, there's a question um, about the, the subjective lived character of experience, which is really a fundamental question for science. Um, if you like, it's the question of human nature. It's a very strange thing for scientists to study, though, uh, in, in one way. Um, and, and, and tell me if you see a flaw in, in, in my, my reasoning here. Typically, what science looks to explain are things that make a difference in the observable world. You know, uh, cosmologists right now are looking for a better understanding of what's called dark matter. They can't see it. They have absolutely no specimen of it, but they know that something is making galaxies spin in a certain way. Uh, There's something exercising gravity that's keeping galaxies, which spin very fast, from flying apart, and there must be some matter there. They need that dark matter to explain what they can see. Um, and they're looking for they have various theories of, of what it might be. Um, other times, scientists are looking for something that may be sort of a purely theoretical thing, something they can't observe, like, say, a string in string theory, but they still need it to tie together elements of their theory that ultimately relate to things we can together observe. But consciousness, do we need consciousness to explain anything uh, that we can observe? I mean, isn't it possible to simply explain ourselves as mechanisms, just the way we explain you know, a robot, a machine, a computer. Why would science even need to posit consciousness? Can't you see the excitement in a child's eyes? Don't you see the intention with which the baseball player approaches home plate to take his turn at bat? You can't describe, you can't even describe those events accurately if you don't describe them as the expressions of the mind in action, and this is true throughout the animal world, we see we see purpose, intention, focus, responsiveness, perceptual power in the lives of animals. Um, there is no merely physical or merely physiological description of living beings which captures what we see when we see them. So, I re- I think one of the one of the crucial mistakes that science has made is to think of mind as a posit as a positive, a hidden background mechanism to explain what we see in the way that the examples you gave work. Mind is not a theoretical posit. Mind is something we see, perceive in others, and know in ourselves, and we seek to understand it as a, as a visible phenomenon. You know, I said, said earlier something that might seem pretty preposterous to some listeners, uh, including some scientists, when I said 
science deals with things that can be observed or have an impact on the observable world. So it perplexes me as to why science would be interested in consciousness when, in fact, one could imagine a world that looks just like ours in which everything observable is exactly the same and there was no consciousness. That is, yes, we'd see animals and human beings interacting, but we could imagine that they're unconsciously interacting. Well, this is a very, very interesting question that you're raising, and in some ways it goes to the to the heart of, of what is so puzzling about consciousness. Certainly, if you think of consciousness as an interior accompaniment of the things we do, mm-hmm. then one can ask, why do we need it? After all, it's just an accompaniment, and couldn't we be simply built or programmed to act all those ways without, without him? Mm-hmm. Now, my way of thinking about consciousness is that consciousness isn't something that happens inside us that corresponds to or accompanies the things we do. It's a particular manner of involvement with the world. So in a way, your question doesn't arise for me. Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, without belaboring it much longer, I just want to make a, have you make a distinction for me, a meaningful distinction between those things that we seem to be thinking and working out unconsciously um, and you and you acknowledge that in your book that you know a lot of things happen in the blink of an eye. You know the popularized version is is Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink. You know that a lot of expert decision making goes on behind the scenes that we're not even aware of. It's very much like our conscious thinking, but it's faster and we're not aware of it. What does consciousness itself add to a picture in which we can think pretty sophisticatedly and make decisions without knowing we're thinking about them? Most of the time, we we contrast unconscious perception or unconscious problem-solving precisely with conscious problem-solving. Um, so the driver uh, needs to pay attention to the road, um, and yet a driver who's driving for a long time um, may have very little conscious recollection of, of their doing that because in a way they get onto autopilot where on, on one level of description they're, they're paying close attention and they're very responsive, and, and on another level they're not. Part of what I think is distinctive of consciousness, although I don't want to necessarily offer this as a definition, but is when we actually use information about our perceptual relation to the world to guide our perceptual relation to the world. So if there's a flash, a flash of light, it'll, it'll capture my, my attention. Um, a lot of, and, and, and will, will, will sort of invite me to direct my thought processes and my attentional processes to it. Um, a lot of the time, nothing happens that sort of peremptorily grabs my attention, and and I don't don't need to do it. Um, and frequently, if if our attention isn't engaged, we don't notice things that are going on around us. And I want to let listeners know that this is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today I'm talking to the philosopher Alvin Noe about the biological basis of consciousness. He says our minds are much more than a function of our brains. So, in a sense, I think getting back to my earlier point about um, science even choosing to study consciousness, despite your statement that we know that there are other minds, we feel that there are other minds, we're sure of it, you know, in, in a sense we were, were born <laughs> with that with that certainty. That's That doesn't sound terribly scientific to me. I almost feel as though th- by choosing to study consciousness, scientists are almost admitting um, unconsciously, uh, you know, a certain contradiction in their own, in their own terms. That's a great question. Um, I think you're right. Actually, I think you've, you've hit you've hit on a deep conflict in the practice of cognitive science. That on the one hand we're studying, we're trying to understand the mind and consciousness. On the other hand, we're 
we, we tend to adopt methods that rule out any possibility of understanding mind and consciousness because <laughs> we just look at the activity of cells um, and, and mind and consciousness don't exist at that level. Now, having said that, um, let me be very clear about something. I, I feel it's, it's maybe been implicit in everything we've been saying or everything I've been saying, but I want to just underline it for you and for your listeners. Um, I'm not writing this book as a critic of science. I'm writing this book as a scientist or I'm writing this book as somebody who thinks of himself as trying to help cognitive science establish proper foundations for itself so that it can move forward and, and really actually succeed in explaining these phenomena. Um, I think part of the problem is that so much cognitive science has actually been sort of imaginatively straitjacketed by a set of assumptions that it doesn't even know it's making, such as that there's something inside of us which does the thinking and feeling and that that thing inside of us is either the brain or, or as, as the, an older generation of thinkers would have said, um, an immaterial soul. So you said at the beginning of your last uh, response that there is this kind of tension or contradiction in, in, in the practice of cognitive science. And I wonder if this little bit of um, audio I'm about to play, uh, which is an excerpt from a conversation I had with Daniel Dennett, your fellow philosopher and actually, I guess, a former teacher of yours, uh, who's one of the major explainers of consciousness in the world today. In fact, he has a very well-known book called Consciousness Explained. I wonder if this little exchange I had with him doesn't um, point to some of what you're talking about. If I ask you, close your eyes, I want you to imagine a red disc and a blue disc, Okay. And I want you to imagine them about as large as possible. So you do that. I say, have you done it? You say, yes. I say, all right, call the red disc Tom and call the blue disc Bill. All right, now, Tom is to the left of Bill. Bill is to the right of Tom, right? Yeah, yeah I can do that. Now, those things, Tom and Bill, do not exist in your brain. There is something that exists in your brain, and it's non-coincidentally related to Tom and Bill. The parts of your brain that are active for seeing red things and blue things and the parts of your brain that are active for seeing circles, those parts are playing a role in this. And you are enabled, not just enabled, but in fact sort of, it's a, sort of involuntarily, this is what you feel you got to say. This is, what I, this is what I was doing. This is Yes, I did that. I can even talk about it. So we're sort of creators of a sort of involuntary metaphorical description of what's going on in our brains. We don't realize that it's metaphorical, but it is. Uh, Daniel Dennett, the philosopher who's written extensively on consciousness, talking about a, a situation in which uh, scientists observe a subject who's visualizing certain things, and they're looking at what's happening in the brain. And, and, and it seems to me that what Dan is saying there is that the experience that this person is having is really a metaphor, he says metaphor, for what's really, really happening. And what's really, really happening are certain neurological states in the substance of the brain itself. Uh, what's your response to that? You've probably had this, this very conversation with him. Indeed, I have. Um, I'll just preface my, my comment on that by noting that I can't think of anybody who's done more to advance the cause of the study of the human mind than Daniel Dennett. He's a hero of mine. Um, but I think he's wrong here. Um, and his mistake is a subtle one. And the mistake is this. It's quite true that a subject in that interrogation might assert, yes, I am now imagining 
I forget the exact example, a red disc next to a blue disc. I'm now imagining it. And then Dennett points out, of course, there's nothing actually going on in your brain, which is a red disc and a blue disc. But um, the mistake there is thinking that when I say I'm imagining a red disc and a blue disc, I'm saying anything about what's going on in my brain. When I'm talking about my experience, I'm not talking about what's going on in my brain. My brain is at most, as as Dan Dennett certainly very well understands and, and even says in this example, the brain is at most causally responsible for what I'm imagining. And I should say that I'm not trying to stack the deck against Dan Dennett. He's not here to defend himself, but I'll give him a chance in a future interview. Well, I should say this is something that, that Dennett and I have not only talked about, we've, we've exchanged on this in print, because this comes up um, as a central issue, dividing not just how we think about this case here was imagination, but for, for example, how you think about visual perception. Um, and I'd be happy to, to go into that if, you, if you'd like, but this is something we've, we've ex exchanged in print about. Well, let me ask you a question. Maybe this will take us along that path. Um, now, now, his example is, is pretty accurate in one sense, I think, uh, um, in that when experiments like this are done and people are in, say, fMRI machines where they can image activity in the brain, that... Um, Often when people imagine visual things that you can see a corresponding activation in like the visual centers, you know, and maybe I'm going to make this up. If you name them, uh, what were the names, Bill and Tom, you might see some activation in that part of the brain associated with naming things uh, or with people's names. Um, what do we learn from seeing that? Um, the person, as they experience it, isn't ultimately relating to the brain. It's a very real experience for them, regardless of what's happening in the brain. But something is happening in the brain, and it's something that can be maybe fairly predictable and, and, and um, you know, very precise. What do we learn from that observation? No, the thing about the thing about the fMRI technology is, is it's it's very dangerous in the sense that it gives us pictures, and it's very natural to interpret the pictures as pictures of thinking or pictures of of all of our mental lives unfolding within us. That's not what it's pictures of. Um, if if it's pictures of anything, it's pictures of metabolic activity in the brain, and in fact, it's indirect pictures of metabolic activity in the brain. That is, it's pictures, it's measurements of physical magnitudes that are believed to to be associated with blood flow processes in the brain, which are in turn supposed to be related to mental processes. So it's just not pictures of mental processes. Mm -hmm. Now, whether the logic and reasoning that governs the use of fMRI images to build a theory of mental processes is good or bad or not, that's something that needs to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. But let's just not make the essentially silly mistake of thinking that fMRI pictures show you the mind at work. So am I right in thinking you would distinguish it from most or all other kinds of medical imaging that are precisely locating uh, some kind of physically relevant function or or structure that you know it, that directly relates to a medical problem or a medical issue so fmri is really different in kind from x-rays and mris that we use to find muscular injuries or um barium tracer studies where we we look at uh, what's going on in the digestive system right and the, sim like the simplest that. way to see what the what the big difference is is that um the brain is constantly doing stuff. It's constant. It's never, the brain is never at rest. So if, how, how do you then take a picture of the brain performing one task rather than another? Well, you need to sort of try to make some assumption about what the baseline is that you can ignore so you can find the crucial difference. And that's where theory happens. There you're in the space of essentially, it's not, it's not guesswork in the sense that it's, it's like reading tea leaves. It's based on theory, but that's precisely what it is. It's a theoretical activity. It's not merely taking a picture.
exactly what would a valid explanation of consciousness sound like? You know, how would we know it was a good explanation of consciousness? To say that the brain's like a computer, you know, only gets us so far. Mm-hmm. Say that the brain's like a movie theater and there's a visual image projected back there, <laughs> just puts us in a deeper ditch, really. We have to explain who's watching the movie screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would a real explanation of experience sound like? That's a great question. Um, and it's probably not one you can answer from uh, too high an altitude. You have to kind of <laughs> get... get you have to sort of look at puzzles and questions and kind of roll up your sleeves and and uh, and and try to investigate. One one of my thoughts is that the first thing you need to be sensitive to is um, what the phenomenon is you're trying to explain. You know mm-hmm. what is consciousness, and a lot of times I think we just think that we know that when in fact there's sort of a lot of interesting work to unpack. But what is the character of our visual experience? Is it the case that the world seems to show up to me like a picture in my mind? Or or is that not the way the visual world shows up to me? And if it is, then we have to approach it one way. And if it's not, then we have to approach it another way. So, so one question is just getting clear about the phenomenon whose nature we want to explain. But then another thing is just getting clear about what it is that we find puzzling about those phenomena. What is the itch that we're trying to scratch? And I think it's going to be different technologies, different strategies, different theories for different itches. <laughs> well, well, let's let's address one itch right now, the one that is one of your favorites, I think, um, and, and it's it's written about quite a bit in the book, and that is visual perception. Hmm. And um, how would you go about, you know, since you you aren't just you aren't just refuting traditional science, but you're proposing your own way of understanding and studying consciousness. Um, how would you, you know, begin to investigate the visual system? Well, the the first thing is to um, to try to carefully think on the question, try to try to describe what, what the f- visual experience itself. Um, there's been a tendency to think that seeing is like having pictures in the head, and then to think, therefore, of the processes that underlie seeing as processes whereby those pictures are made or developed mm-hmm. sort of in the minds in the minds processing lab yeah in fact uh, you know if i can jump in and say you know classic description of how vision might work uh, that you address and this is one you know anybody who studied neuroscience is familiar with it starts with things called feature detectors after the image is received by the retina and passed to the, the visual cortex the very first thing that happens is cells you know, a network start to sort out what are the rudimentary um, components of the scene, you know, diagonal lines, vertical lines, and things like that. And it it starts to build up into a full picture by assembling all these little pieces of visual information. That's exactly right. And and for me, things are already way, way, we're already halfway up the wrong tree by the time we're at that point, because that's just taking for granted that seeing is this process of building up an internal picture. That's just taking for granted that seeing is something that happens inside you. So my strategy is to say, look, we're, 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 we're animals. We're not sort of uh, structures for holding movie theaters we're, we're, or, or picture makers. We're, we're animals who are interested in the world around us and in interacting with the world around us and exploring the world around us. And instead of thinking of the seeing as something that happens in our brain, I say, well, let's think of the seeing as something we do. And so how could one begin to approach seeing that way? Well, my thought is instead of thinking of seeing as a process that begins in us thanks to the stimulation of the eyes, think of seeing as a particular way or style or manner of encounter with the world around us. Um, That is, think of it as ways of having access to the world around us, access which depends not just on our brain, although of course it does depend on our brain, but also depends on the way the rest of us is built. So for example, how eye movements are possible and head movements are possible and body movements are possible and how by navigating in the environment we can better come to visually explore the environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you like the metaphor of dance a lot. Yeah. Um, and you work with dancers. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I, I do. Um, in a way, I think n nothing more perfectly captures the interactive and dynamic character of our consciousness than the comparison with dance. Um, it takes two to tango, and it takes two to be conscious. It takes you and the world. And um, you have skills, you have capacities, but your skills and capacities work because you've got your feet firmly on the floor, and the sun is coming from above, and um, the world is there for you to investigate. Um, if I'm right, that experience is a dance, uh, a dynamic that you, in, that you undertake in your relation to the world around you, then it turns out that we shouldn't think of what it would be to investigate your own experience as a matter of introspection. It's not a matter of looking inward to what's going on inside you, because the dance isn't happening inside you. It's a matter of paying attention to what's going on around you and the way you're handling yourself. And then something marvelous comes into focus, namely the idea that, in fact, what we all do when we go to a, say, theatrical performance, such as a dance, and try to see it and try to understand it, is actually a good metaphor for phenomenology, for trying to get perception itself into focus. So I view, I view the arts and, and science as having a real opportunity to collaborate in mm -hmm. thinking about the nature of consciousness. And, and, and to uh, bring science back into it, in addition to, to the arts, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about a, um, an experiment. You, you, you list a number of experiments uh, in your book, but one that really captured my fancy was one that was performed by um, a physiologist slash engineer, uh, Paul Bach-Irita. Back in the 1960s, this is a marvelous study. Um, what Bakirita did, and this work, Bakirita unfortunately is now is now deceased, but his his started this research in the late 60s. What he did was he took a blind person and um, outfitted the blind person with a camera, say mounted on his shoulder, and then the camera was wired up to an array of vibrators or electrodes on the skin, say on the abdomen, um, and there was a little transducer that had the effect of allowing visual information presented to the camera to activate the vibrations on the skin. So as the spine person moved through the room, they had an array of bzz, 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 buzzing feeling sensations on their abdomen. Representing the objects that the camera was picking up. Caused by the, stim the visual stimulation uh, to the camera. Mm -hmm. And what is remarkable is that after a fairly short period of time, the person wearing this device, which, by the way, is called a tactile visual substitution system, TVSS, or sensory substitution system, what this person was able to do is navigate visually around the room to describe what there, what, what's there, to describe the numbers and spatial relationships of objects, even with a, in, in one case with a ping pong ball to, to reach out and, and, and swat a ball effectively. Now remember, we're talking about a blind person who's receiving patterns of tactile vibrations touch. in the skin. Touch, sort touch. of long-distance touch. It's like, it, well, it's, touch isn't long-distance. Touch is against the surface of the skin. The touch is all happening on the surface of the skin, and yet it is subserving or it is enabling an interaction with the environment, which is indeed uh, the environment at a distance, very much in the way that sight works. Now, so ask yourself the question, what is it about what's going on in the touch areas of the brain that is explaining why these people are seeing with their, with their skin? And, and what I say is that the only way to understand that is to realize that those touch areas of the brain are enabling a certain style of interaction with the environment, which is normally supported by seeing, but thanks to this curious apparatus, is being supported through the somatosensory parts of the brain. Now, these people, these blind people, are experiencing this thing like sight. They're saying, I 
have an image that's being produced in my, you know, in my mind's eye? Is that how they're experiencing it? Or are they saying, oh, I'm, I'm feeling this pulsating on my chest, and I know that must mean there's an object ahead somewhere? No, they're, they're, they're responding to the world in the same kind of spontaneous visual way that you would. Yes, it's as if they're seeing. And they, and they report that. that yes, absolutely. That it's like I'm seeing this. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so what you're saying is that um, though this whole you know, interaction is mediated by touch, what the brain experiences is very much like eyesight. And the reason it does that is because the quality of the information it's getting is very much like that that we normally get visually. It's at a distance. When we rotate our head, it changes in this or that way. That has all the spatial yeah. qualities of sight. Exactly. But Robert, you just can't bring yourself to break with the outmoded way of talking. It's not, I'm not interested in what the brain is experiencing. I'm the I'm straight man in this. I'm, I'm not interested in what the brain is experiencing. I'm interested in what you're experiencing wearing the device. And the point is that you're seeing with it, even though the areas of your brain that normally enable you to feel touch are active. Why? And what my argument is, and I run through the details in the book, is that... Um, it's not the intrinsic neural activity that matters. It's the way that activity is bound up with the pattern of interaction with the world. That is what makes it the case that you're seeing and not merely feeling touch. Yeah, not to reduce your theory to a tagline, but um, would it be fair to say, look at the interaction, not at the actors? Look at what, look at what the actors are doing and not what's going on inside them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my tagline. You're looking at relationships, there's this old-fashioned um, logical idea that you simply look at entities and their properties, and the interaction arises from those properties. But you're saying the interaction is what really, really counts. Right. Or, or, or to put it yet another way, I like the way you're putting it, but to put it yet another way, it's context that really matters. Mm -hmm. We need to look at, you can't look at the brain alone, you need to look at the brain in context, in the context of the body, in the context of the interaction with the environment, and also there's other contexts that matters too, like cultural or historical context. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I hate to, to keep going back to robot and android uh, stories, which inevitably come up in, 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 in discussions of consciousness, but if we were able to replicate the interaction uh, with androids, you know, the kinds of interactions that we humans or other animals have, would we create consciousness that way? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm no enemy of artificial intelligence. I just think we're, we're much farther away from doing that than we tend to think because so much of the work of, of roboticists is focused on working on, on sort of replicating in, internal computational organization mm -hmm. rather than uh, situatedness. It's a very subtle, delicate way that we are situated in the world around us. And if you want to make robots that can think, what you need to do is find ways of making beings that are situated in the world in something like the way we are. Alternatively, you need to make very simple worlds for them to be situated in. Uh -huh. So world, but so mind, mind is coordinate to world. Nothing, nothing has a mind that doesn't also have a world. And um, because mind is, if you like, the achievement of a certain kind of intimate relation to the world. But it wouldn't be as simple as me creating some androids and, and staging a play in which they act out the roles of human beings and pretty much replicate our kinds of interactions. That wouldn't magically conjure consciousness, would it? You mean if you made creatures that that behaved as if they yes. were like us? Yeah. yeah. No, that would be that would that would be a very successful way of making creatures that behaved as if. They How were do like you distinguish us? as if from? The real thing. My my claim is is not so, and, and so this is this is this is why I, I slightly resisted your characterization just in terms of interaction, and why mm -hmm. I said about I talked spoke about context, mm -hmm. or about about um, it's not a matter of what's going on inside of you; it's a matter of what you do. 
what's crucial to understanding um, what's at the foundation of our access to the world is skill. And skill is something which is a, is a kind of responsiveness. It's a kind of attunement. And nobody has yet figured out how to make robots that are skillful. Oh, so so even, you know, a factory robot that does a pretty amazing job of, you know, etching something uh, to within a millionth of a millimeter uh, is not skillful? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ordinarily describe the robot that way. I would describe the engineer who made the robot as skillful. <laughs> um, I mean, most most of the times robots, most of the robots we have don't really do very much or, or um, people do things with them. They're essentially mm -hmm. very complicated tools that we've devised. Mm -hmm. So the question is, I mean, you're actually, I don't mean to be glib in my response to you because you're getting at something really deep that has not been very well articulated by anybody in this whole field of research. And I'm not altogether confident I know how to do it myself. But it has something to do with the notion of the autonomy of 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 the agents involved. I was going to say, freedom does come into this, doesn't it? it, it you know, one of the things about the simplest living organism is that the simplest living organism is, if you like, this um, this sort of true agent coping with the situation in which it finds itself. All the artificial organisms, sorry, all, all the artificial creatures that we have, uh, the machines that we have, um, can't really be described in that sense as as coping or or, or as as um, being anything other than sort of extensions of some other agency, namely the agency of the designer. Um, and, you know, one, one, one way to kind of get at the point I'm making is that we've been trying to make intelligent robots. You know, we should try to make the stupidest robots we can. Let's see if, let's see if we could even succeed in making something. Let's see if we could make something as, as and I'm, I'm, for, the, for the, those of you out there in radio land who can't see me, I'm making quotation marks with my fingers. Um, <laughs> we should try to make, you know, something as stupid as a cell, um, you know, because that is already something which is fantastically autonomous in a way that even the most complicated robots in industry or in artificial intelligence laboratories are not. Well, listeners to my show will, may have heard the, 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 the show that we dedicated to E. coli and how complicated it is and how at least some engineers have found it to be more complicated than anything they've ever designed. Um, although, of course, we, we should say, you know, in fairness, many scientists would describe this E. coli, no matter how complicated it is, as no agent at all but just a little mechanism obeying certain rules, you know? But, but you see it differently. Yeah, I find that very implausible. Um, um, I don't want to pretend to being an expert on, on the E. coli bacterium, but um, I, I suspect that um, to really understand even the behavior of, of such a simple organism, one needs to view it as responsive to the environment, as pursuing needs, as doing things for reasons. Not I don't mean to say that it has reasons that it understands, but um, I don't believe that there's a purely mechanistic theory of the E. coli bacterium. Mm. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm speaking to Alvin Noe, philosopher and author of Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain, and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. Now, now you speak about the essence of this mystery that is consciousness um, as having something to do with skill. You use another term, another everyday term, a lot, and it's habit, and how essential habit is to this this um, particular theory of consciousness. Habit, really? Isn't habit like unconscious? Isn't <laughs> habit what we do, you know, without thinking about things? Yeah. 
it's it's funny. Habit is one of those words that's really loaded in our in our mm-hmm. sort of uh, moralistic uh, outlook. It's um, a pretty degraded. Uh, it's pretty. Word. We think of habits as as essentially, by and large, we think of habits as bad. They're things that you don't have control over, like and, ticks. That's right. It's you know smoking, spitting, scratching yourself in public. <laughs> I mean, picking your nose. These are habits. Um, whereas we forget that you know that um, grace, posture, sensitivity, um, uh, balance uh, are in a way habits too. That is, there. There's we have we have um, we we cultivate in ourselves ways of being. Think think of think of the instrument. A player, a musician, you know what do you do you you by rote play scales and play notes so that you get to the point where your fingers know how to do it automatically, brutally, without deliberation, and that that habit layer that you lay down like a foundation then becomes the basis for musical improvisation or or musical understanding. The same thing is true with with arithmetic, you know our children are forced to memorize the times tables. Because on the basis of the foundation, it's possible to think about the numbers in ways mm-hmm. that you can't think about the numbers mm-hmm. unless you've memorized that. So for you, habits really are like skills. So, but I, I think of habit as I'm, habit is this more more general notion uh, that includes skills, but um, I, I in a way is um, is it the foundations of our of the way we live? We are not each of us in the situation of um, sort of rationally assessing and evaluating everything we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, is a, there is a kind of romantic idea. You know, Descartes talked about turning the age 40, uh, which, which I think was meant to be a ripe old age, and, um, and seeing if he could give up all the things he'd ever taken for granted, all the things he'd ever learned just from his parents and from the culture around him, and if it would be possible to start and piece by piece build up his knowledge from the secure foundations of, of that which he himself could prove to be true. And I not only think that it's not possible to do that, but it actually, if it were possible, the resulting cognitive assemblage wouldn't look anything like human knowledge. For the foundation of human knowledge is not well-grounded beliefs, but are habits and modes of being and modes of responding that are themselves beyond question or beyond question for us. So, And not just habits of body, but habits of mind. Yes. Habits of body and mind, exactly. Yeah, assumptions, things we take for granted, all of those things that uh, we don't work out from first principles. Yeah. A, a metaphor I use in the book, which I think really captures this, is the metaphor of the trail or path. And this is something that other thinkers have explored. Francisco Varela wrote beautifully about this. But, for example, um, when, you, when, you, when you go through the woods, the very action of your movement through the woods creates a path. We lay down paths in walking over time. And as the path is laid down, it becomes harder and harder for us not to take that path when we want to travel in the woods because the cost of breaking off the path and going through the bramble is simply so high that we are it becomes an attractor the path the path that our own actions make becomes an attractor that becomes hard to resist in very much the way that water builds a groove down the side of a hill and then forever path follows that path down the side of the hill and and so much of our lives uh, both cognitive and physical are following out these paths that we or, or those who came before us have made for us 
And it's very rare, it's very unusual that we ever, in a sense, leave the paths, the cognitive trails, the the um, the the lived paths of of our brethren. Um, this is one of the ways in which I think we're really not. It's a mistake to think of us as sort of independent. We are we are deeply dependent on on a landscape around us, which has in part been shaped by the lives that we ourselves lead. So we talked a moment ago about how, you know, scientific uh, sort of first attempts to begin to outline what an explanation of consciousness would be, and, and that's, that's about as far as they, these things tend to get. Um, still, it's hard to imagine what their ultimate explanation would be that would begin to explain or somehow touch experience itself, as you put it, the redness of red. Mm. You can tell me what red is. Yes, it's a certain wavelength of visible light, but the redness of red, the red I see. Can your approach, your emphasis on interaction on selves and worlds, selves and the world, and relations thereof, does that get us to the redness of red? I try to. I try to. I try to show how we can at least begin down a pathway that will lead us lead us to that kind kind of a story. Again, we need to be very careful about our description of 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 what the phenomenon is that we want to explain. What is the redness of the tomato? If you actually look at the tomato, um, the tomato's got a very complicated surface, and it's it's not entirely uniform across its whole surface. And indeed, it is um, uh, very visibly non-uniform. As light falls on it in different ways, the the bright light of the incandescent bulb makes this part of the tomato actually, if you look carefully, almost shiny mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. and white. Whereas mm-hmm. the part sort of down below, in shadow, is is actually almost a sort of a grayish dark. So I look at this tomato and I see it, and I experience its color. In fact, I experience it in some sense as having a uniform color, even though it's incredibly manifold and dappled in its color. So I think what I'm actually doing there when I experience the color of the tomato is experiencing something like the way in which the tomato itself is responsive to an environment. I'm experiencing a very complicated interplay between the tomato and the environment. Um, I'm not interested in what's going on in my brain. I'm interested in how this tomato is sort of is being shaped by and interacting with the world around us. And this brings me to a whole sort of aspect of my, of my theory, which um, I, hasn't really come up in our conversation yet. Um, and in fairness, it's not something I emphasize much in, in this book, but in other writing, it's very central. Namely, um, I'm very interested in interactions between the animal and the environment, but also between features of the environment. And I think of colors as environmental features, and um, colors, I think, are very complex dynamic patterns of exchange between elements in the, in the world. And so then what it is to experience a color, what it is to perceive a color, is to be attuned to those kinds of lawful regularities in the way that things interact with each other. Mm-hmm. You're not proposing something in place of normal uh, physical descriptions of light, are you? I oh, mean... yeah, of course. No, nobody, nobody thinks you can explain color phenomena in terms of light. In terms of light, yeah, that's that's a, that's a very old idea. <laughs> no, seriously, there's you cannot the color the 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 there is no one to one relationship between the perceived color of an object and the physical composition of the light that it reflects. That's, For instance, if we had a tomato in this badly lit room right now, 
the actual color of that tomato would not be red. It would be colored by these incandescent lights we're, we're sitting under. The, the point is and that yet when, we would see it as red. The point is when I take the tomato from inside here to outdoors, yeah. the lighting changes, and thus the physical composition of the light that's reflected from mm -hmm, the tomato changes, mm -hmm. but the perceived color of the light doesn't mm -hmm, change. Mm -hmm. Nor is there, nor can we identify the color strictly uh, with some chemical or physical composition of the of the tomato itself, because there's lots of different. Um, kinds of objects with different kinds of physical compositions that can look the same mm -hmm. in, in lighting conditions. So, mm -hmm. so we really need the color. The color itself is this is a, a major, uh, outstanding problem in in the theory of 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 nature. Like what are colors? Um, and there's an old idea which is just not really even worth talking about that the color is just a sensation in you. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another idea which is that the color is just the light. Actually I think the color is a complicated interaction between an object and its environment and we have the perceptual skills needed, needed to be sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to let you go without asking a couple of real basic questions that I think will be on many people's minds. We human beings are conscious, yes? Yes. Animals, they conscious? Ah, this is, now this is a very important question. Um, Yes, animals are conscious, um, and uh, the, but in a way, the hardest problem in this whole domain is this, is this question that you're now raising. How do we know about the minds of others? How do we, what is the basis of our commitment to that? That's a, that's a huge issue, which, which I discuss, actually, at great length <laughs> in the book. Um, can you summarize it for us briefly, or is it impossible? No, 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 of course I can summarize it. Anything, anything worth saying or writing can be summarized. How's <laughs> <laughs> that for a controversial claim? Um, my view is that our commitment to the minds of others isn't a, a a commitment that we make on the basis of evidence. I don't look at what you say and do and therefore conclude that you're conscious. Actually, that you are conscious is something I presuppose in engaging in a certain kind of life project with you. Well, I mean, you and I aren't married or anything, but you know, we're having a conversation, and I wouldn't be wasting my time having a conversation if I didn't take for granted that you were conscious. That's true of, uh, of dogs, too. I, I read a um, very interesting book by an animal trainer, a dog trainer, who said that if I want to train a dog to be a search and rescue dog or a sniffer dog, I need to actually... Um, I, I can't... I can't think of the dog as a mere stimulus and response machine. I've got to enter into a relationship with the dog. So this is, if you like, I actually think that our commitment to others is in the first instance a moral or existential commitment and not a theoretical one, which is related to the problem we discussed earlier, which is that if that's true, then how do we do science of the mind? Um, and uh, you know, that's one of the things I discuss in the book. That animal trainer was no ordinary animal trainer. I think it was probably Vicki Hearn. It was Vicki Hearn. Yeah. <laughs> the late Vicki Hearn, who was a poet, uh, writer, essayist, animal trainer, uh, wife of a philosopher, and pretty astute philosophically herself. I read her when I was in graduate school, and I, I think about her work uh, all the time. That was from a book of hers called Adam's Task, Calling Animals by Name. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking recently to um, one of the abbots of the San Francisco Zen Center, and I thought, you know, they come from a tradition that does a lot of introspection and a lot of thinking about consciousness. Uh -huh. So I, and knowing that I was going to be interviewing you, hmm. I asked him about consciousness. Hmm. Hmm. Here's what he had to say. Is consciousness in here, and I'm pointing at my skull, no. or is it out, out here? Consciousness Outside. is everywhere. We can't exactly say that there is a, some absolute locus of consciousness. So consciousness is everywhere at the same time. Then we pick out one thing. So we're, we're emphasizing. Tentatively, I may emphasize consciousness uh, in the mind or in the eyes, you know, eye consciousness, and then, you know, how we experience the world and with our, our various senses. But to know that we have all that and also 
there's built-in limitations. So any particular range of awareness then uh, is also has a limit. You know, there's only so much we can see, only so much we can hear, and so that's our human, our human range. But then, just to consider that trees know what time it is. You know, they know when it's time to put out their leaves. <laughs> if we subtracted what we normally think of as sentient beings from the world, human beings, mammals, other life forms that we, 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 we grant consciousness to, they'd, they'd still be consciousness? they move around. Yeah, yeah they move around. <laughs> but there would still be consciousness without us and them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was uh, Steve Stuckey, co-abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, giving sort of a Buddhist... Um, view of consciousness. Um, what parts of that do you agree with, and, and what parts do you disagree with? He sounded like a like a marvelous guy, uh, somebody I'd like to talk to. Um, I think that um, the idea that um, that we really do think of of consciousness as as a kind of something that we achieve in in a setting which is much larger than us, um, and that we achieve thanks to that setting, um, is is an important. One and and insofar as that thought was in the abbot's remarks, I'm I'm sympathetic to it. Um, I might even be sympathetic with the idea that that uh, trees are conscious, but I think I'd like to um, leave that one for contemplation. <laughs> what about the idea that if we took brains out of the picture altogether? I I don't really have a view about that because mm-hmm. I. I, I'm very much grounded in a certain conception of the problems that I'm starting with, which doesn't mean I'm not open to expanding the conception of the problem. But as I've said more than once in our in our conversation so far, for me the problem of consciousness is the question of how the world shows up for us. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it is a question about our achievement of access to the world. If you take us away, then there isn't a question about how we're achieving access to the world because we're not achieving access to the world. Um, but on my view, certainly throughout the animal kingdom, there's consciousness. Um, and as I say, I'm willing to contemplate the possibility that <laughs> that might be true of of, um, of life outside of the of the animal world. In a way, one of the fundamental motivating ideas in in my study, and this is um, something which I emphasize in the book, is that there's a deep and necessary connection between the problem of consciousness and the problem of life. Um, so. I think that there might be something to be said on behalf of the idea that where there is life, there is at least a kind of proto-consciousness, mm-hmm. whether or not there's you know rational agency or mm-hmm. cognition. One of many um, remarkable statements in your book that I wanted to uh, single out, not let you know escape this conversation. Uh, I think it, uh, I, I'm not quoting directly, but in essence, it's depression is not a brain disease or mm-hmm. not a neurological disease. Despite all the findings about serotonin levels and how depression can be treated by adjusting those serotonin levels, you don't think it's a a brain problem? Well, this is such a complicated question. I'm, I'm really glad you're bringing it up because in a way I think that the whole problem of how we think about a disease like depression is really a nice sort of model for how we think about the phenomenon of consciousness itself. Um, if by the idea that consciousness is a brain disease... Sorry, <laughs> scratch that. <laughs> if, if by the idea that depression is a brain disease, 
you mean that we can um, bring about changes in in psychological or psychiatric states by directly acting on the brain by using pharmaceuticals, um, then yes, in that sense, uh, depression um, is a brain disease. Um, but if you mean instead, can we understand why this person in front of me now is depressed, just with reference to his or her brain alone, I think the answer is, is no. Mm. Um, depression is something a person encounters always against the background of a, a life led with real circumstances and, and real details. And anybody who's ever suffered depression or worked with the depressed um, um, will, I think, recognize that a brain-level approach alone is not going to be mm -hmm. adequate to the yeah. task. See, I, I'm always very guided in my, in, my, in my explorations of how things are by the question of what, 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 what would be necessary to explain the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and you, I think you hit on a, a, a very useful distinction for the purposes of this conversation um, between a kind of very utilitarian approach to things like depression, which says, yes, of course, in fact, I don't think any competent medical person would ever disagree with you that depression involves all kind can involve all kinds of factors including life history and environment and things like that but if we want to fix it uh since it ultimately leads to potential and i'm going to oversimplify here but there are many many diseases like this where you can say whatever the ultimate distant causes are the the result is a change in in say chemistry of the brain and we can treat it by adjusting that chemistry of the brain or we can treat an appendicitis by removing the appendix, and so on and so forth. Many scientists are interested, uh, I think, and many, certainly medical practitioners, are, are interested in that practical problem. My sense is that the current wisdom on these questions is that drug therapy in combination with some kind of therapy, I've, I've often heard cognitive therapy praised, um, is, has the best um, practically measurable Long-term long -term results. Yeah. Um, so, so even if one takes a purely practical, I just want the solution that works approach, there is no reason to think that the brain-oriented approach is mm -hmm. privileged. The, the, brain is, the brain is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And this is really very important for my view about consciousness because in a way I'm suggesting that we need a certain kind of holism, a certain kind of respect for the organism and the, or the conscious being as a whole, analogous to the kind of holism that is required to treat a sick person. Which reminds me a bit of, of a quote in your book from the poet Delmore Schwartz, I no more wrote than read the book, which is the self I am. Yeah. That, to me, really summarizes the spirit in which I wrote the book. I no more wrote than read that book, which is The Self I Am. You mean you didn't write this book? <laughs> I didn't write myself. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't make the world. I find myself in it. And we are ourselves and the world around us um, problems for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think, ultimately, the aim of a science of consciousness, like the aim of philosophy, is to try to understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we do like uh, Delmore Schwartz and get hammered? <laughs> oh, dear. Alva Noe is professor of philosophy at UC Berkeley and a member of the Institute for Cognitive and Brain Sciences and the Center for New Media. His latest book is Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness.